trust everybody has their sheet from last week. If anybody does not, there should be a few left back on the podium. And if they're, they are gone, I've got more up front here. Talking about family relationships. I'm, I'm very impressed with how thorough our doctrinal statement has been and saddened by how needed some of these definitions are in today's culture. But praise the Lord for the clarity of his word because it's in there. So we have answers for all the things that society messes up and that our selfish hearts have a tendency to mess up. Uh, But family relationships. Uh, Section 1, we understand that gender roles lay the path to successful function. So everybody is screaming about equality nowadays and things like that. Well, here are your first two blanks. Spiritually equal in position, distinct and separate spiritual functions. So men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but not the same in our design or in our function or in our positions before the Lord. So just because those are different doesn't mean that men and women are of different value. Our society has lost sight of that. Everything should be the same. No, everything should not be the same. Uh, Just life does not work well like that. Men and women are equal, though, uh, according to Genesis 1, 26, and 7. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And yes, the word man there is the generic for mankind. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. The image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So God was completely intentional in making men and women of equal value in his eyes. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, ye are all one in Christ. So as much as our world and different societies and different cultures do to separate and to classify and, and all these different things, God says, no, nah, that's not the way I made you. You're all beautiful and special and, and unique and equal in value in my eyes. So the whole issues with race and different cultures doing different classes of people and and so many different things and the bigotry, it's it's foolishness. God doesn't like it. We need to understand that uh, your first blank under section one, equality does not mean that a man and woman should have the same positions, roles, or abilities. Equality means that they have the same value in the eyes of God. That's your first blank. Second blank, equality means that they'll each have to make the same level of personal investment to create a successful marriage. That's often a point that we lose. It's like, well, we all want to be equal. All right, in that case, you need to put in your fair share. If you want to be equal, it's kind of a joke around our house. Uh, My son likes to watch some of these videos out on YouTube and trying to help them be a little discerning about what they want. But a lot of these things are very humorous. I said, well, all right, culture, if you want true gender equality, and then it shows a bunch of eclipse of a lady out there changing her tire and her husband walking by saying, good luck with that, and just walk away. If you want true gender equality, there you go. You change your own tire. You get your own door. You protect yourself. See ya. Bad guy comes walking up. Well, true gender equality. He's out of there. You know, the foolishness that if you really want that, you know what it really looks like? It would not be desirable. So you need to make the same investment. Equality means that each have the same level of importance. 
regarding the care and development of their children. We're going to look into that more tonight in our second section. Equality has more to do with, your next blank, responsibility than it does ability. God designed us with different abilities, but we are both responsible. And that word keeps coming up throughout this uh, discussion. We've gone over Genesis 2.18 fairly well. Verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him and help meet for him. So God intentionally did not bring Eve along immediately. He wanted Adam to see all of creation and realize, You're missing something, aren't you, boy? Well, let me show you what that is. Takes the, the rib, creates Eve, and Adam says, Now. I understand. I need her. She is the same as me. As far as flesh of my flesh, in verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God does what he does for a reason. His timing, his purposes, everything. It's to get these things across. Now, talking about uniqueness, though, God complemented in his design to put two together to, to create a, a very powerful cooperation and ability between men and women. So your second paragraph there says, God's created men and women with different physical, mental, and emotional makeups. This diversity enables the challenges of life and family to be met and overcome. Such design reveals that God wants a husband and wife to cooperate and depend on each other's unique abilities. Your blank is disregarding gender differences will lead to frustrated relationships and results. Blank after that, appreciating these differences will lead to better communication, deeper joy, and overall success. So the this next section was rather entertaining. Uh, just giving examples and, and giving these stats and watching you guys' faces, especially those of you who have been married for any amount of time, uh, the recognition on your face was, was very entertaining because I'm sure there are a million and one stories that you've got from your own experience to back up these points. But we looked at generalized differences between men and women. So I recommended highly... Uh, the books Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egrich, uh, The Five Love Languages. Uh, let's see, who is that by? Is it Gary Chapman? I always want to say Gary Smalley. It's Gary Chapman. And then uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus by John Gray, who is not presenting that information from a biblical standpoint. Please dis be discerning. But a lot of very accurate recognition in the differences between men and women. So we're very different in our problem resolution. Women face challenges socially. Men challenge, face challenges individually. Here's your next couple of blanks. Women talk as they reason. Men talk after they reason, which this communication difference leads to a lot of conflict if men and women don't understand those differences. Guys need to cool down, think it through, and then come back and talk. But talk they need to do and not just Ignore the situation. Women need to give them time. Wise couples learn how to talk, then wait, and then talk again. We're very different in our communication style. Women use four to 6,000 words a day. Men use maybe 2,000. Your next blanks, women communicate feelings. Men communicate information. It's just the way we're, we're programmed. 
Next blanks, women want to be heard. Men want to problem solve. So as soon as a guy recognizes, honey, do you want me to just listen or do you want a solution? That will make your world so much better as long as your wife is willing to just be honest and say, I just want you to listen or I need you to help me solve this. Communication just goes so much better. Women want to nurture. Men want to protect and provide. Women most desire love. Men most desire respect. Uh, Gary came up to me after last week's lesson and said, but pastor, I just don't see how the one can, can exist without the other, which is a very, very good point because if you're doing what you're supposed to, the two should fit together perfectly. Though we do tend to lean more on one side or the other, one is a little more important than the other, but truly the two ought to go together. I watched that growing up. I could see that my dad respected my mom by how he treated her, and therefore it communicated love, and vice versa with how she communicated with him, that respect was communicated, and therefore they had a very loving relationship. So the way we do what we do communicates something very different to each spouse. You respect me versus you love me. Sometimes that's really hard to grasp from our own personal perspective. Guys are able to respect each other a little more, even though we're very abrasive in how we communicate. But to a woman, that would be very unloving. Well, no, I respect you. I'm just being honest with it. Yeah, but the way you're communicating to her is communicating that you don't love her. And to a man, the way his wife speaks to him, you don't respect me. Oh, no, I do respect you, but right now, like, no, that, that's not what's being communicated. So men communicate and listen through blue. Women communicate and listen through pink. The goal is to make purple in the middle, but there are some things that we need to understand about each other. Physical makeup, obviously, that's very, very different between men and women. On and on the list goes. And at the bottom of your page, recognize these differences, but do not forget about our individual sin nature. You could read all these books, folks, and the simple fact that your wife is a sinner, you are a sinner, that's going to add a whole other level of difficulty to all this. In fact, maybe all that understanding is going to help you fight dirtier. (laughs) I hope not. But we have to recognize that. That is where, honestly, a lot of modern psychology misses the mark. Men and women are able to sit down and analyze case studies and think and reason through a lot, make some great observations. But the simple fact that they don't recognize man's sin nature and their responsibility before God means that all of those analyses and studies and recommendations aren't going to do everything that needs to be done because we're spiritual creatures. And at the bottom of it all, at the end of the day, this is a spiritual matter. So you can't disregard that specific aspect. Very, very, very important. So as we transition there to page 75, gender roles become more specified within a marriage relationship. So there are all these wonderful differences and similar or actually fully equal value between men and women. 
But when a man and a woman enters a marriage relationship, things get very specific. And we looked at uh, Genesis 2.18, where we recognize that it's not good that a man should be alone. God has designed men and women to come together in marriage. Of course, not forgetting that caveat that we studied previous weeks, that there is a gift of singleness for certain people. Not a lot, but it does exist. But generally, uh, we do better when we get married. Ephesians 5, uh, 21 through 29 is one of the most critical passages to go through to understand the role of a husband and role of a wife. So it lays out the most foundational of marital responsibilities. Here's your next blank. A wife will support her husband best as she submissively respects him. A husband will, your next blank, lead best as he lovingly sacrifices for her growth and care. That is the foundation. Different male and female personalities, different age levels, different maturity levels, that dynamic could be very, very different from one couple to another. But at the bottom of it all has got to be this biblical foundation. Very, very important. And the only way, men, the only way, ladies, for us to truly do our job is for individually for you to walk with Christ. The relationship between you and God is going to enable your insight to see how you're supposed to fulfill this job specifically for your spouse. So all the the marriage counseling, all the marriage seminars, everything you've ever learned really goes unused. It gets wasted if you're not walking with Christ. That is absolutely essential to do this job. Next section, common reasons for marital conflict. Well, a lot of it comes down to unrealistic or unmet expectations, number one. A lot of it comes down to efforts to manipulate or change your spouse. We have problems, and you're the problem, so here's how I'm going to change you. Wow, that's, that's a terrible way to go about it. Number three, operating outside of one's designed roles, either because they don't know their role or they don't like their role, so they're trying to change the, the foundation that God wants us to lay. That's going to be a lot of conflict right there. And last, the two biggest relationship killers that cause conflict are selfishness and unforgiveness. It would be, do us all well to sit down constantly before God and say, Lord, would you show me my areas of selfishness? Would you please show me where I am not forgiving my spouse where I need to? I want grace from them, but show me how I'm supposed to show grace to my spouse. Lord, how am I being selfish? Down at the bottom of all these problems, what do I need to change? If we would just do that, folks, I think a lot of Christian counselors would go out of business, which would be fantastic. You know, it sounds bad, but really, uh, that would solve so, so, so much. Uh, Bottom of page 75, the leader in Genesis 3.16, God has designed that the man should lead his home. Leadership is very, very important. Yes, we are both equal in value before God, but we are different in role. So if we're going to get to a goal and you're dealing with a, a pair of people or a group of people, there needs to be leadership set up to make sure everybody stays on track. Before the fall of man, that was probably not needed. 
Everybody is in harmony with God and with each other. All three, God, Adam, and Eve. But immediately at the fall, that hierarchy, that chain of command, however you want to put it, it became necessary, which means men need to step up and women need to be willing to let the man lead. A lot that goes into that. Your blank down at the bottom uh, of the first paragraph, leading mandates that one takes ultimate, again, responsibility, and the others willingly follow. That's Colossians 3.18 tells us. Next paragraph, leadership will never meet its full potential without a strong support system. So a leader does not depend if, excuse me, a leader that does not depend on his support system weakens himself, weakens his team, and endangers the overall success of that team. Your next blank, leadership must trust and delegate to his team's individual strengths. That is one of the areas sometimes that men fail at. We think we got to lead, which means we want to do everything ourselves. Well, God made you a team for a reason, because there's stuff that she's good at that you're not. She has insight that you don't. And if you don't rely on her, it's because you don't trust her. That's really what it comes down to. We have to be willing to lean upon each other. God gave you that woman because you've got a lot of weaknesses, guys. And I tell you what, I got a big old list. That's why Elizabeth Cawley is such an amazing woman, because she's got to make up for all my inadequacies. So I depend on her a lot, and it works really, really well. Let's skip down and uh, hit page 76 now. Now that we're done with that review, kind of a lengthy review, I apologize, uh, we'll be able to get through this and hopefully give you guys at least a good 15, 20 minutes uh, to be able to go through some of those questions. Section two is now that we've understand the, the unique makeup of men and women and how that comes together in marriage. Now, section two, understanding biblical structure will lay the path to a successful family. So family is the foundational institution of society as a whole. So I would like to, to challenge you guys to kind of think of this as a, as a factory production line. And maybe it's kind of a, a masculine image, but in all honesty, you put the right stuff at the beginning, you put it together properly, you get a great product. If there's a, an issue in that process, you got problems. You're, you're creating garbage. And really, that's what's being produced in our society. So think of it this way. Step one, a strong husband and wife team are best suited to model and mold healthy kids. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Well, a lot of folks have forgotten that nowadays. Healthy kids, number two, will positively influence their culture and society. You're putting good citizens out there, creating good stuff. You know, instead of the, the music that's just disgusting, we have people creating excellent music. The art isn't gobbledygook and disrespectful to God. It's actually inspiring and beautiful. Uh, the, the laws that are being created, the businesses that are, are out there aren't supporting evil and the breakdown of the home. They're actually doing things to support the home. All these different things will be created through good, positive, healthy young people being produced. And then based on a healthy culture and society, number three, a strong society will have a large pool of ethically sound people to fill governmental ranks. We're going to have a lot of wise servant leaders 
who use that responsibility and position to now turn around and support the home. What created them, their character, their focus, their maturity. So all of these things feed each other. But if you break down the home, you break down a good moral populace, which means you've only got garbage to choose from and elect, and they're not going to support that home. So we either build society from the home or we tear down society from the home. And we're watching this. Now, I did add a a couple of things to the, the brand new sheet, so you may or may not have this next blank, but let me give it to you. Fatherless and one-parent homes have a systemic effect on society. People love that word systemic because it makes you sound really smart. Okay, systemic means that there's an issue that affects every corner of the house, every area of discussion and effect. I want to be really careful here because there are one-parent homes that have been created because of a death in the family or something outside of your ability to change. We're not dogging on one-parent homes where it was not their fault, okay? But to recognize that there is an effect by children growing up without one of their parents. I mean, whatever the cause of the single-parent home, there's still an effect from it, good or bad. And it is systemic. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of research because folks have already done a lot of these studies. Uh, From the government all the way down to individual uh, polling institutions to individuals who are just very thorough about what they read. And so the stats I'm about to show you are very widespread. This is why I didn't give you a lot of the sources because there are multiple, multiple sources all saying the same thing. One in four U.S. children are being raised in a fatherless home. That's 18.3 million kids in our country right now who don't have both mom and dad at home. That is really detrimental to a large portion of our society. Children of fatherless households are four times more likely to live below the poverty line, produce 71% of all of our high school dropouts, twice as likely to commit suicide, 10 times as likely to abuse chemical substances, and are 20 times more likely to spend time in jail. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I didn't have room to keep giving all of the stats. Whatever the reason, this is what is being produced because God designed a mom and a dad to raise kids. It's just better that way. Households without fathers, uh, somehow that got jumbled up a little bit in copying and pasting. I apologize. So if you look at the average school-age boy in America right now, they will spend about 30 minutes a week in in one-on-one conversations with his father. But that same child spends 40 to 60 hours a week watching television, playing video games, and surfing the internet. Folks, that is a full-time job of just being on electronics. Full-time work week and maybe 30 minutes talking with their dad. So who's getting the most influence on a young male mind? Whatever media you're sticking in front of them. 
Those are cold, hard facts. Our results suggest, from uh, one study group said, that the presence of a father figure during adolescence is likely to have protective effects, particularly for males in both adolescence and young adulthood. Very true. In fact, uh, another study put out using uh, data data from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. that's, That's a mouthful right there. Basically, what they found is they studied neighborhoods and said, all right, within the families of that neighborhood, you can graph it that for every percentage of families in that neighborhood that only have one parent at home, your violent crime in that neighborhood bumps up by 3%. So if, let's say, 20% of that neighborhood are kids without a father at home or kids without a mother at home, your crime rate in that neighborhood just jumped up 60%. It's statistically able to be charted. That's a serious, serious issue. In fact, um, I think some of you the other week had gotten me onto this, so I started to do some more research. Uh, a well-known convicted child predator by the name of Jack, uh, Jack Reynolds was interviewed years ago, and I watched that interview. He was very specific in the kids that he targeted for molestation, and he would not just look at the kid. He would first look at the family. So he would see, well, all right, what families don't have a strong father figure in play? Because he said that was the number one thing. If I saw a strong male at the home, he's like, I wouldn't mess with that kid. Number two, he would look for areas of financial uh, weakness, educational weakness. Then he could be the grandfatherly type to come in and do something kind financially for the family or help tutor a child. And that many times very overworked mother just thought that was the most wonderful thing. Hey, if you want a night out or a night by yourself, you know, have the kids stay over at my house. I'll take care of them for the weekend. And, you know, you just enjoy yourself. You're really tired because the guy was a sick freak. He would pick out those kids that were attention starved and would give them special attention because kids just soak things like that up. This predator would look for the weakest of society and within those children find the weakest of the children. And every single one of those weaknesses is one that is also produced from a fatherless home or a single-parent structure. Folks, what we do in the home has massive ramifications from our children's personal safety all the way up through the quality of people that we have to choose in elections. So the structure of the home is a systemic problem in our country. Children now, we move from... uh, Male and female, we, we've looked at marriages, we've now looked at family structure, but now focusing specifically on kids. Children are an heritage of the Lord, we read in Psalms. In fact, if you would please, uh, I'll give you a chance, turn to Psalm 127. There's a couple words in here that would do us well to understand. Uh, Genesis 128, God gave us a responsibility that we, as men and women, are supposed to produce more little men and women out there. So God gave us the ability and the duty to propagate, but that blessing from God comes with a heavy amount of responsibility. 
So if, uh, if anything else, throughout this study, you're going to get really good at writing the word responsibility because I want that thought driven home. Psalm 127 tells us this. As soon as I can get there. There we go. Psalm 127, verse 3. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Beautiful language. We like to to quote some of those verses around babies being born and, and things like that. But God's very intentional in what he said in that passage. A heritage is a possession, a property, an inheritance. So basically, you are being given something of extreme value as a parent. You've got this kid. Society is either going to hurt because of what you don't do or what you do, or society is going to be bettered based on what you do or don't do as a parent. Children, verse 3, are rewards. Reward, a compensation, an earning from God. Now, maybe it would help our society if God said, nope, you don't deserve kids, you're not getting any. But, unfortunately, it doesn't take much for kids to be produced, even by irresponsible people that don't deserve those little blessings. But in God's eyes, they are rewards. Verse 4, children are arrows. They are tools sent out to do a job. I don't know how much you've ever gotten into archery, but there's something called uh, traditional archery where you don't use all the fancy compound bows and carbon arrows and things like that. It's, it's more traditional. It's just a recurve bow or a normal bow. And some people even get to the point where they do primitive bow hunting, where they make their own arrows, which that is an art form. It really is. I mean, you could produce something that looks beautiful, but will not fly straight. It takes a lot of work to produce a tool like this that is functional and accurate and able to do the job that it was made for. Children take a hundred times more effort because they go out and they affect their world. But as a parent, it's your job to make sure that that is a positive effect. Verse 5, children are the joy of a parent's heart. But they're only the joy of a parent's heart when those children do right. Proverbs 10, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. A lot of truth to that. So may that drive our young parents to do what is necessary because your kids can break your heart. Or as you get older and you see your kids step out and serve God and do what's right, there's no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. That wasn't just a spiritual thing that that Paul said about Timothy and and those young men. That's true of every parent. This is a huge responsibility, and it will shape your future. So that's a good perspective on kids, but also there needs to be good cooperation. Uh, Turn back with me, Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. Honestly, folks, these specific points, you could have a full week of conferences on each one of these, fleshing out exactly what it looks like, tips, story illustrations, more detail. 
this is just an overview. And so at points, it's kind of hard not to jump onto rabbit trails and talk about these individual points. But it's, it's such a full topic. That's why I'm glad we have a, a very, very large Bible full of detail. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And you know what that allows you to do, parent? Now, if it's in thine heart, verse 7, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. So unless that relationship with God is firmly planted in your heart, you really don't have much to pass on. You can pass on religion, but that's not what your kids need. They need a relationship. So your next blanks, your home is to provide a spiritual education and a practical model. That is what you provide, folks. Now, you cannot guarantee that your kids are going to follow it. But it is your job as a parent to educate and to model. And I firmly believe that God is going to use that to give every advantage to your child. You understand that, that caveat with Proverbs when it, does, uh, when it says, if you raise your kids, they will not walk away from the Lord. That's a maxim, okay? That is a general truth. There have been kids that have been given the best upbringing possible and have still walked away from God. And then there have been a whole lot of kids that have been given a very imperfect upbringing, but God has still worked great and wonderful things in their lives. We just as parents have to do our best to walk with God, do what's right, and trust that the Lord will do everything that's necessary to give our kids the best possible success. But in the end, your child does have a choice as well. But here's the balance of this statement. Your home is to provide a spiritual education and a practical model. Your church is to provide perspective and reinforcement. This is something that is many times lost in parenting. Well, I take my kids to church to learn spiritual things. No, they learn spiritual things at home. Your church ought to be backing up what you're teaching your kids. It is very easy and I found that I've done it myself, even as 18 years as a youth pastor. My kids are in Sunday school. My kids are in children's church. I teach children's church. Yeah, but that's within these walls. What am I teaching them in the four walls of my home? They've got to see the same thing. Am I making an effort to see that my kids are growing spiritually at home? Am I investing in them there as well? Because if they see it here, but they don't see it at home, You know what they're going to think is the real deal? What's at home? That's what happens, folks. So we can't just relegate spiritual education to the church. You just need to make sure you got a good church that's teaching what you are doing at home. That's got to be the way it is. And statistically, those are the kids that do really well as they get older. 
So let's look at the process quickly. Try to get through the, the last little bit of this. Uh, Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. So yes, it's going to take a spiritual education at home and a church that's backing you up, but it's also going to take a home process of discipline, which our society has almost completely lost all concept of what it means to discipline a child. The only thing they see is trying to talk to a two-year-old to reason with them, or they see the people that beat their children bloody. Okay, both of those are ineffective and destructive, just in different ways. Scripture gives us a very difficult, but a very effective method. And these are just some of them. A lot of these verses in Proverbs are very, very clear, and the Holy Spirit helps us to implement them properly. So we see from Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, discipline is a tough but necessary part of parenting. It is really tough. If any parent likes disciplining their kid, you have a problem because it is not a fun process. Nobody likes being the bad guy. But if I am not the bad guy, then I'm not doing my job because kids have foolishness inbred. It's natural. And the rod of correction is what drives that out. It just changes forms throughout the years, right? We still have things in our lives as adults that can uh, correct us. It just typically has to do with either our pocketbook or jail time. So, you know, maybe as a kid, getting swatted is is a whole lot cheaper and a whole lot easier than those uh, adult type of processes. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, or whenever it is necessary. So your next blank says discipline is a loving part of parenting. That is something that that a parent needs to keep in front of their eyes constantly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. We have to rejoice that our children are being taught to do right. We cannot rejoice in what is wrong. If you really love your kids, then you're going to discipline them. Now, type of discipline, that's a whole other topic. Because different kids are different, uh, different societies, sadly, are different. Some go too far, some don't go far enough. That's a whole discussion in and of itself. But we do see in Proverbs 19:18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare or hold back for his crying. So we see that discipline is time-sensitive. This is why I get so frustrated when I see parents in Walmart with their kid throwing this crazy tantrum hissy fit. I'm like, handle that. Because if you don't now, it's going to get worse. You've got to handle it while they're young. And please don't sit there and try to reason with the two-year-old. They don't get it. What do they get? Their butt's getting whooped. Kids at that level of development understand certain methods and do not understand others. So a parent being aware of those developmental levels and using discipline methods that are appropriate for that developmental level are going to be doing all right. 
even though it's not going to be easy. And our society does not reinforce what it used to. Used to be as a kid, you know, you could go out and run the neighborhood until uh, the sun went down. And so help you, if you got caught by a neighbor doing something stupid, you'd get whooped. And then when you got home, they had telephones. They'd call your parents. When you got home, you'd get whooped. You know, there, it was a different society back then. It was the same thing at school. There was such a thing as corporal punishment in the, even the public school system back in the day. Heaven help you if you went to a Catholic school. You know, you'd get beat four times before you get out of that. And then when you got home, you'd get whooped again. All right, so it is a different society nowadays. My wife had to rein me back multiple times because our kids were acting out in public. And I'm like, that's it. We're going to the bathroom. She's like, Ryan, you can't do that here. I'm like, yeah, but he's doing it here. I got to handle this here. She's like, you can't. Well, I don't want to go to jail. I mean, it is a different society. But kids are kids, and they need discipline, whether the Karen in the next aisle agrees with it or not. But it is time sensitive. If you don't handle your kids when they're small, the cops are going to have to handle your kids when they get older. That's how it works. I would rather deal with my kids now, even though it's hard, so they don't end up being a crud ball later on. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Okay, so there are limitations to what you do. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now, folks that do not agree with spanking your children will often pull this verse and say, you're beating your children. Okay, no, I don't beat my children, okay? They got squishy little collie backsides, which are perfect for dealing with things, okay? You don't go to such a degree that you are doing physical harm, okay? But God designed your rear end for more than just sitting on. It works pretty well. But discipline, here's your next blank, is a teaching opportunity, not an outlet for anger. This is really important. This is where a lot of well-meaning parents make mistakes, especially dads. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So don't do things that are going to cause your kid to resent you. So there's a whole process to the disciplining structure. But number one is you never do it when you're mad. I mean, how many of us were told when we were growing up, go to your room, I'll be up there in a couple minutes. I mean, psychologically, that's terrible. Like, yeah, you're sitting up there waiting for it. But honestly, it's so that you as a parent can calm down. You never want to discipline when you're mad. You're going to go too far, so on and so forth. It's a teaching opportunity. So what did you do wrong? Answer me. Was that right or wrong? Answer me. You realize that you deserve this. Answer me. So you're helping your kid work through that when they get old enough to do that reasoning. There's a whole process to it. If you want extra details, we could talk about it later. But it is for teaching. You're training your kids. And as long as your child is convinced that you love them more than anyone else, you can be tougher than anyone else. Now let's talk very quickly. We'll finish up with the foundation of child discipline. Number one, you must take personal responsibility for your actions. And by that, uh, some of you will not have these blanks. Uh, These are ones that I just want to tell you about. 
I'll add this next time we go through all of it. Um, the foundation that you're laying is you're teaching your children personal responsibility. Our society has no concept of personal responsibility anymore. It drives me insane. But if you're training your children and disciplining, they're realizing my actions caused this disciplinary action on my rear end. This is my fault. That's what you're communicating because they're going to need that when they get older. Second, God and parents give boundaries for your good. This is what God does for us, folks. It's not to hem us in and ruin our fun. It's to protect us. There's a reason we have boundaries. And I will tell you through working for a long time with teenagers, the teenagers that think that their parents don't care about them have parents that don't give them boundaries. I've heard the words out of their mouth. Ah, my parents don't care. It's not just that they don't care about that boundary. Their kids are doing whatever they want. My, my parents don't care. You know what's being communicated to that teenager? My parents don't care about me or what I do. To an immature teen, that's like, yeah, I can do whatever I want. But that's actually communicating something damaging to them, that as they get older, my parents really didn't care. They just let me do whatever. And they actually thrive when they go over to a friend's house where their parents say yes and no to things, and they have boundaries. Kids actually gravitate to environments like that. That's why we have bus kids that come in this church, and they act like angels for our children's church teachers. But then as soon as their parents come in, they go back to being little hellions. Because in those classes, we have boundaries, and kids actually thrive under that environment. But that's hard to do as a parent, but it's necessary because you're actually communicating things about God. And then that last sentence, learning justice through punishment and discipline, learning justice will pave the way for appreciating grace. Parents, we're setting up a lot that when they realize personal responsibility, if I do something wrong, I will be caught and I will be punished. If that is in their mind, this is the way life works. Then when somebody swoops in with grace, they're like, whoa, what, but, but, but I, don't, I don't deserve that. What a gift. This is, this is amazing. I, I appreciate this. I want to be a better person because of this grace. Parents, you're setting them up for salvation. But kids have to learn justice first. If they just get grace all the time, they don't appreciate it, and they take advantage of it. So there is a reason God says what he says about disciplining children. There's a responsibility on our shoulders as parents because what we're doing is laying a foundation for their view of God, preparing their hearts and their minds for salvation, for becoming a positive influence on society so much, so much. So as we studied... Uh, a lot of overview topics about the difference between men and women, marriage, family structure, and working with kids. God lays out success for any society or culture, but we've walked away from this by and large. So we may not be able to change our nation overnight, but we can work within our own homes. If you've already had kids grown and out already, sit down and talk with your kids about how they're raising their kids. Show them these principles. Explain some things. Because 
we hope things have been passed on to our kids, but we're really not sure until we see how they handle their kids. Those are the things that have stuck. So I would encourage you as we break up for, oh, I'm so sorry, six minutes of uh, group study that, that you guys will look through some of these questions and mm, maybe you should just go ahead and skip the first one. Yeah, skip the first one. Try to get right into question number two. If you've already looked through some of these things over the past week, you'll know why. Uh, but I really want to challenge you guys to get into some group discussion about some of these topics and uh, look at yourselves biblically, 